If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to open with me to Luke chapter 19, if you would, and we will pick up in verse 11, Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. And today we're going to uh, study the parable of the Minas, the parable of the Minas. Now, um, uh, this is not as well known as some of Jesus' other parables, even once he's told in, in the Gospel of Luke. For instance, we have the Compassionate Samaritan and, uh, and so forth in, in some of the other Gospels and uh, in some of the other writings in Luke. But this is a, uh, this is a parable that he told in, uh, in response to some, uh, some expectations that were going on in his ministry. Now, if you'll, um, if, if you'll, when we read this, you'll probably notice that what he says in this passage is very similar to what he says in another passage. There's a, a passage in Matthew uh, 25, I believe it is, where he, uh, it's after the triumphal entry in Matthew 25, and he tells a parable of the talents. Now, when we think about a talent, we think of a skill or a proclivity, uh, something that somebody's good at. And so we read talents, and, and this, this master entrusts some talents to his servants, differing amounts according to their abilities, and entrusts them to, uh, to make use of those in his absence. But a talent in this context, or in that context, is not a skill. It's an amount of money. In our text today, it's very similar. He, he gives this, there's a master who entrusts some meanness, which is also an amount of money, to some servants, it, this, this parable is told before the triumphal entry, and so it's, I think it's pretty plain that this is a different parable from the more well-known uh, parable of the talents. But they have similar imagery, similar topics, and in, in this section, Jesus is going to conclude his teaching on the kingdom of God. And so what he's going to tell them is that uh, he, he's going to give them some instruction, and, and really us some instruction, because he's telling them, this is how you should live in between his death, burial, and resurrection, and his return. And that's where we are today. We're in that, uh, that in-between time, so this speaks right to where we are. So I know you just got to sit down, but if you found Luke 19 and are able to, I'd like you to stand in honor of God's Word. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 11 and read down to verse 27. It says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given uh, the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five, uh, has made five minas. He said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you to, that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from, the ones who, um, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. 
These enemy, but these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now this parable is, is uh, it's kind of an odd one because it, it, it takes two, it's almost like it combines two images and just kind of squishes them into one big one. And so I, I want us to work our way through here. There are a number of, of headings that I've broken this down uh, in. They, they all start with the letter R for Uh, for ease of memory, the first thing I want you to see is the reason for the parable. Look at verse uh, 11 again. The reason for the parable. While they were listening to these things. Now the question is, who is the they? While they were listening to these things, and what things were they listening to? Well, you remember back uh, the last time that we gathered together in in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 1 through 10, Jesus has just gone to the home of Zacchaeus. Remember we looked at that last week, Zacchaeus, a wee little man up in the tree, and Jesus said, come on down, I'm going to your house, invite himself over, you remember all that? The people saw this, they heard this, they were upset because Jesus was going to the house of a sinner. And so they, they grumbled about it, they complained about it, but Jesus went and he brought salvation to the home of Zacchaeus. And so Jesus, in verse 11, is still in and around Zacchaeus' home. This is, this is the crowd that has followed him there. These are people who are still there listening to him, maybe part of his, uh, Zacchaeus' household, part of the crowd that are there, part of the disciples. They're, they're there and they are hearing these things that Jesus has been saying to Zacchaeus. Now, Jesus tells this parable, according to verse 11, to correct some misapprehensions, some mistakes that the people have been making. Because he's been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about salvation. He's been talking about all these things. And, and of course, you remember, he's, he's headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? Remember, that's a commemoration of whenever God freed the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And so they had a, an annual commemoration of that in the Passover feast. And so here Jesus is going up there to Jerusalem, to the capital city. The people are sick of the Romans. They want this, this government overthrown. Um, they, they see the miracles Jesus is doing. Um, they, they know that the things that he's doing, uh, th- those things are associated with the reign of the Messiah. And, and so they're going up to Jerusalem to commemorate God's work of salvation in the past. And so there's this messianic expectation, there's this messianic fervor as people think that he's going to come in kind of like Rambo and things are going to be blowing up and people are going to be, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a bloodbath and here comes the Messiah, he's going to set up the kingdom. And so that's what they're thinking and Jesus in verse 11, is going to say, he's saying, now put on the brakes, that's not what's going to happen, I'm going to go, but there's going to be a bit of a gap there because I'm going to go away. And so Jesus is preparing them. He's, he's trying to get them to have a right uh, frame of mind so, so, so they understand the kingdom is not coming the way that you're expecting in just a little bit. There's going to be a gap. In the meantime, the, my followers need to be diligent. They need to be active. And, and the people who reject me will experience judgment. So that's the first thing. We have the reason for the parable. The set, next thing I want you to see is the reception of the kingdom. Look at verse 12. The reception of the kingdom. Now in verse 12 he tells about a nobleman. And that nobleman represents Jesus. It says that he went away to a far country to receive a kingdom. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Because very few, if any of us, are familiar with the way that the kingdoms were received in Jesus' day. And so because of that, when we read this parable, it may not make a whole lot of sense. We may kind of... It, have you ever tried to put together a puzzle without a, a picture that you're trying to, and 
And you can kind of piece things together, but it's a lot easier when you know what you're trying to get, right? And so hopefully this, is, this will be kind of like a, a key piece that will help you see the big picture of what he's saying. Back then in, in, the, in the Roman era, whenever Jesus was walking the earth, when a person was going to receive a kingdom, he had to go to Rome first to do it. And so what he would do is he would go to Rome. The emperor would validate his right to rule. He would be entrusted with, with this dignity. He would be in, in, entrusted with this, with this authority. And he would, be, he would basically get the, the emperor's stamp of approval, saying this man has a right to rule this area. And then that person would go back and actually begin to rule. And so that's what is in view here whenever he says this nobleman went off to a far country to receive a kingdom. He is, he's talking about going to this other place like Rome and getting his authority validated, to being entrusted with this, with this rule. Now it's interesting because this happened several times in history. For instance, with Herod the Great, he had to go to Rome and, and get this done. Um, Archelaus, you say, I don't know who that is. Well, he, he, was, he was a Jewish prince around the time of the birth of Jesus. And he actually comes into the biblical picture. You remember in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. You remember this? Just after Jesus was born, he flees to Egypt. And then uh, he, he's going to go back to Israel, the family is. And an angel says to Joseph, okay, go. Um, the, the ones who saw the baby are dead and, and so forth. And then it says, when, when Joseph heard the Archelaus was ruined in Judea, he went to Galilee. So Archelaus was, uh, he was a Jewish prince that nobody liked. And in fact, what he did was he went to Rome to get, to, to receive his kingdom, to receive this rule. And the people sent a delegation of people after him. A group of 50 people who went and implored the emperor not to let this man rule over us. This is what, I mean, Jesus is mirroring in, in his parable. He's mirroring something that actually happened. And so, so these, the, this delegation that's being talked about, this is the one that's coming to the emperor saying, we don't want him to be our king. We hate him. And so with that in mind, think back over this, this text. As we read through it, hopefully that will help give you a, a little bit better of a picture of what's happening here. Jesus, who is, who is the nobleman, he says that he went away to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. In the meantime, now, in the meantime... He puts his slaves into business. And that's the next thing I want you to see. He, he, there's a reassignment of goods. Okay, He's preparing them. The kingdom's coming, but it's not yet. In the meantime, here's what you need to do. There's a reassignment of goods. He says, I'm going to be going away. Here are my resources. And he gets these slaves together, he, and, and ten of them, and he gets ten minas, and he gives one of them a piece. Now, a mina was a unit of money that was worth about 100 days' wages uh, for the common laborer. Okay, so, so about three months' worth of wages, and he entrusts them to these slaves. Now, you'll notice that this is different from the parable of the talents, because with the parable of the talents, he gives different amounts to each one based on their level of capacity and, and ability. Here, he gives them all the same thing. And, and, and I... I think this is an indication that this, this the, the, the mina here isn't resources, it's not abilities, it's not uh, anything like that, but rather this is probably the gospel message. Because the gospel message is the same no matter who you are. 
no matter what your skill level is, no matter what your ability level is, no matter what your capacity is, the gospel message is the same. And I want to, I want to pause here and say that God has entrusted you as a Christian with the gospel message. He has entrusted you with the gospel message that he entrusted Billy Graham with. And he has entrusted you with the same gospel message that he entrusted the Apostle Paul with. Somebody once told, I think it's D.L. Moody, uh, somebody, I, I think it's his father, said, there may be somebody that preaches the gospel better than you, but there's nobody that preaches a better gospel than you. What you have is the same gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. He, this is the same gospel that, that John the Baptist came preaching, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And I just want you to, to, to ask yourself this question. Have you been faithful? Are you being faithful with the message that's been entrusted to you? Have you been faithful and are you being faithful with what God has given you? It is our job, it is our role to be faithful until he returns. Next, I want you to see the rejection of the citizens. The rejection of the citizens. So this nobleman goes on a journey to receive a kingdom, but he's not well received. He's not loved. He's not accepted. He's not welcomed as king. And Jesus came to his people. He came to the Jews who had had thousands of years of, of prophecy and, and hundreds of, of prophecies and scriptures that said, this is, this is the king that's coming. This is your Messiah. This is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. And his people rejected him. The leaders spurned him. They tried to entrap him. They ended up working to have him murdered. Many of the common people didn't stay with him. Yes, they were attracted to him, but people are attracted to, to, to a spectacle. And so many people went to see the spectacle. Many people went to, to, to get the loaves of bread. Many people went to see miracles performed. They gave lip service to him as king, but they didn't persevere. When he gave difficult teachings, like in John chapter 6, they turned and they left. They said, this is too hard. We don't, we're, we're not going to follow somebody that says these things. Yes, they, they came for the miracles, but whenever, he, whenever persecution came, whenever difficulties came, they turned tail and they ran. They fell away because to use the, 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 the image of the parable of the sower, they had no root within themselves. The Bible says Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. And so it is today, countless scores of people are hostile to Christ. They don't want Christ to reign over them. They don't want Christ to rule over them. They don't want to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. But listen, it's either Christ or chaos. So he was not well received. You'll, you'll see what it, what it says, verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Out and out rejection. Next, I want you to see the reward of the faithful. The reward of the faithful. One day, nobody knew when it was going to happen, but one day, the king returned. The king returned, and on that day, he brought his service together first. He said, give an accounting of what you've done. I've entrusted this, this, this stuff to you. Now, what have you done with it? What, what is the return on my investment? What have you done since it's been in your possession? And one day, you and I are going to stand before God. We will give an accounting for what we've done in this life. We will give an accounting for how we've handled what God has given us. Now, the first slave, he went out, and the Bible says that he multiplied what he'd been given, and through wise investment, he turned his one mina into 11. That's a pretty good return. Now, based on that, he was rewarded 
He got to share in the, the, the nobleman's reign and rule over his new kingdom. Likewise, the second one came. He said, Master, your one has made five more. So this one, he, he's been faithful. He didn't do as good, but, but he too was rewarded based on his faithfulness. Your eternal reward is based on your faithfulness today. Let me say that again. Today's faithfulness determines eternity's reward. And notice that, that he didn't condemn the slave because he had, he had earned less, but rather his reward was in proportion to his faithfulness. His reward was, was he, he, he wasn't as successful, but he was faithful, and that's what he was judged on. And so it is with us, we are not responsible for the outcome. We are responsible to be faithful for what God has put into our charge, for what he's put into our hands, for what he's put into our lives. Our job is to be faithful in our labor because we will be rewarded in eternity for our faithfulness in this life. And the last thing I want you to see is the recompense for the evil. Recompense for the evil. The third slave comes in, and notice how much differently he treats the master. The first one says, Master, I've taken what you've given me. Here, here's what I've done in your service. Second one, same thing. Third one, he comes up, says, Master, and, and this man is completely unfaithful. He says, Master, here you go. You're getting it back. He's not been concerned about the king. He's not been concerned about the kingdom. He's not concerned about doing what he's been commanded to do. Quite likely, he maybe didn't even believe the king would even return. He didn't do anything to, to, to further what had been put, put into his charge. He was disobedient. He was unfaithful. And look again at their interaction. In, uh, in, in verse 20 and following, the slave gives the mina back. And he's wrapped it up in a handkerchief. Your Bible may say a napkin. Now this is kind of an aside, but I thought it was kind of interesting. The word that's used there, that's translated as napkin or handkerchief, it literally comes from a word that means sweat towel. You know, when, when you go out and you're working, sometimes you just need a towel just to, to wipe your sweaty brow because you're hot, you're laboring hard. And it's interesting that he wrapped up this mina, the, this, what has been entrusted to him, in a towel that's be used for sweat because he hadn't been needing it. He hadn't been laboring. He hadn't been doing anything to further what the king had wanted. Me with that, I said that's just kind of a side note, but I thought it was interesting. But look at his reasoning. He said, here's what, here, here's what you gave me. You got it back. Be happy with it. Here's, here's his reasoning. I was afraid of you. I think you're an exacting man, verse 21. And basically, you take, care, you take advantage of the work of others. Now, it's obvious this slave did not know the master. You say, but, but Pastor, look, if you look at verse 20, he calls him master just like the two faithful slaves. And that's true, but what did Jesus say? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Just because he said master, he gave lip service to it, but didn't mean that he actually knew the king. This man was nominal in his faith. He was okay having a loose association with the king, with the master, with the nobleman. Until it came time to actually do something. Until it came time to, to, to put up or shut up, as they used to say. They, they, they were, he, he was fine uh, being associated with the Lord so long as it didn't cost him anything. So long as he didn't have to labor. So long as he didn't have to sacrifice. So long as he didn't have to be obedient. So long as he didn't have to take up his cross and follow him. And so it is today. There, there are countless people 
who will say that they're Christians, who are nominally associated with Christ, so long as, as, as work doesn't enter into the picture, so long as obedience is not required. And many times there are people who claim to be Christians who are living in rank, open rebellion against God, and they're blind to the fact. They're okay saying that they're Christians. Maybe they go to church regularly, but they don't do what God commands. Now look at his words. Look at verse 21. He says, I was afraid of you. At least he got one thing right. Because... <laughs> The non-Christian should be afraid of God. It should terrify each and every person who does not know God in a, a saving way to stand before God in an unredeemed state. It should terrify you to stand before God because you know you're not right with Him. He also says you're an exacting man. Now that word translated as exacting was used of unripe fruit. And we've all bitten into a, a fruit that's not ripe. You know, it's, it's sour, it's hard, it's, it's bitter, it's, it's, it's unpleasant, it's distasteful, it's harsh. That's the idea here. He says, that, I, I think that's the way you are. And then he accuses him of taking advantage of the labor of others. You, you, you reap what you did not sow and so forth. In other words, he's questioning the character of the master. And when I read this, I hear echoes of the hiss from the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, you remember what happens? The, the serpent beguiles or tricks, tempts Eve. And what, is, what does he say to Eve? He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You should not eat from any tree of the garden? No, that's actually not what God said. There, he's casting doubt on the, on the goodness of God. No, in fact, what God had said in, Rome, in Genesis 2 Verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat, except for one. Everything else is open to you. Just have. There's abundance here, but what did the devil say? He doesn't want you to have all that you... He's an exacting God. He's a harsh God. He's an unpleasant God. This man did not know the master. Now, in verse 22, if you look at it, some translations actually render this with a period. It really, the original languages didn't use periods and question marks and so forth. Verse 22 should have a question mark there. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you. That's the key phrase, you worthless slave. Did you know that I'm exacting, an exacting man taking up why I did not lay down and, and reaping what I did not sow? He is not admitting to these things. He's not saying, you know what, that is an accurate assessment of me. I am a hard man. I, I do take advantage of others. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if what you're saying is true, I will use that as the measure that you're going to be judged by. You say that I'm a harsh man? Well, then that should be all the more reason for you to actually do what I've said. If I'm really all as bad as what you say, then by the, at the very least... You should have taken my money and stuck it in the bank because then I'd get it back with interest. If their interest rates were anything like ours, it wouldn't be much more, but at least be more. Now, now in, in, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the, the, the third servant that's mentioned says, does the same thing. 
And in Matthew 25, the, the master's response is to throw him into the outer darkness. That's a picture of hell. Jesus doesn't mention that in, in Luke 19, but I, I take it, it's, it's enough of a parallel, I think that it's the same response. But if you look, he does make it clear what the response will be to the people who hated him. Look what it says in verse 27, right at the end of the text. There are these people who rejected him, they hated him, and notice how they're described. They made themselves his what? His enemies. Now he doesn't let that slide. He commands that they be brought to his presence and killed. That's a picture, first, of the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem in 70 AD as the Romans ransacked the nation. They were judged for rejecting their Messiah. But it's a picture, ultimately, of the judgment that awaits any person who rejects God's rule in their life, who rejects Christ as their Savior. We like to think of Jesus meek and mild, and He was, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10 through 10 tells us that that's not the whole picture. You remember Paul Harvey? You say, and now the rest of the story. Yes, He was Jesus meek and mild, but one day He's coming in judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, for all, after all, it is only... For, um, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. There's a day coming when God will judge the wicked. He will make a separation. He'll make a a separation between the sheep and the goats, between the wheat and the tares, between the righteous and the wicked, between those who are right with God and those who are not, between the saved and the unsaved. And when that happens, there will be an eternal separation. And that's why it's, and, and, and when that happens, when that separation is made, there are no more chances. That's it. Your fate is sealed. And that is why it is imperative that today you make sure you're right with God. The Bible says over and over, don't harden your hearts. While it's called today, respond to God. Accept Christ as your Savior. Uh, turn, surrender to Him. Repent of your sin. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. If you don't know God, through saving faith in Jesus Christ, repent of your sin and put your faith in Him today. But the Bible also has a word in here for us too, who who are Christians. The question is, are you being faithful? Are you being faithful with what God has entrusted to you? Are you being faithful with the gospel message? Do you try to change it because of who somebody is, their, their station in life? Do you try and change it or soften it because of, of, of their position, maybe in, in your workplace or in your family or, or, or whatever it is? Are you faithful with the, with, just with the stewardship that all, with, for all of God's gifts to you? Are you faithful What is the one thing you could do to be better in that today? 
It's going to be different for each of us. Why don't you stand with me as a musician comes. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just... Really, there, there are only two categories of people in this world. There are the saved and the unsaved. There are Christians and non-Christians. If you are a Christian, are you being faithful? And if you're not a Christian, why would you hold on to your sin and your rebellion and your being an enemy of God instead of turning to Christ in faith? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that um, we thank you that you made your your word plain and understandable. You don't pull any punches; you just tell us the way it is. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, somebody who is still an enemy of of yours, that today they would turn to you in faith. that they would lay down their arms, that they would repent of their sin, that they would take advantage to make use of the grace that you've extended. And God, for, um, for those of us who are Christians, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful in the big things as well as the small things that you'd help us to be faithful in, in sharing the gospel, but also in living the gospel at work, in our families, our personal lives. When Christ returns, let us be found faithful. In Jesus' name.